Good evening. Good evening, everyone. Uh, please do take a seat. Make, your, make yourself comfortable. We're ready to start. All right. Very good. Um, welcome, everyone, to the London School of Economics. This is an event that has been organized by the uh, Middle East Center of the London School of Economics, of course. My name is uh, uh, Filippo Dionigi. I'm a, a research fellow affiliated with the center, and I have been given the pleasure and the honor of chairing uh, tonight's talk, uh, which is, in fact, a book launch, as you may have uh, understood from uh, the desk from here. Um, and our speakers tonight uh, are three very distinguished speakers and the authors uh, of the book itself. Um, I've been given some instructions. Um, yes, please, uh, silence your phones and your devices, if possible at all. Uh, so that we are not going to be interrupted. Um, and then if you wish to uh, use your Twitter account or whatever account and tweet about this event, you can use the following hashtag as suggested, which is hashtag LSE Hezbollah, and then Hezbollah, I think. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, somebody's going to have fun about it as well. Um, and Hezbollah is, uh, is, is spelled the way is not uh, corrected by word, which is H-E-S-Z-B-O-L-L-A-H. Anyway, um, our speakers tonight will speak for 10 minutes each also because we want you, obviously, to uh, take part to the conversation and have a chance to ask your questions and participate to the debate uh, afterward. Uh, and uh, so let me go straight into introductions. The order of the speaker will be... Uh, uh, Dina Atef and Lina, right? We agreed? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so the first, uh, the first of our speaker will be Dr. Matar, Dr. Dina Matar, uh, from uh, SOAS, uh, not far from here. Dr. Matar is a senior lecturer in Arab media and political communication, and her research looks at the relationship between politics, culture, and communication in the Arab world, especially in discourses of power and uh, resistance. Um, I forgot to mention, and then, uh, Dina, you... Uh, we'll have a chance to talk. Uh, the fact that tonight's event is uh, titled The Hezbollah Phenomenon, which is also uh, the title of the book uh, that we are uh, launching, in fact. So, Dina, over to you, and then okay. we'll move on. Uh, thank you very much, Filippo, and thank you for inviting us. Thanks to the uh, London Middle East Center. Uh, it's nice of all of you to come, and I see a lot of past, and, uh, past students, so thank you for coming. Um, so this is a book launch. Uh, we're, we're going to talk briefly and just introduce what we did. Um, and um, I think I'd like to start by thanking both Atif and Lina for the opportunity to work with them on this project, which took us a while. Um, and also to thank the Leverhulme Trust for the generous support uh, in granting us the funding uh, for this project. And finally, for Hearst UK uh, for publishing the book. And I hope that uh, you can see some copies here, and I hope that maybe the talk will, will uh, make you want to buy it. So um, it's, um, it's also a sales pitch somehow. Um, so the idea of the book was born out of uh, an intellectual interest, uh, as well as uh, an intellectual as well as methodological interest in the relationship between politics and communication in non-Western contexts, and particularly in relation to Islamist movements and non-state actors such as Hezbollah. When we conceived the idea for the book, which was a long time ago, 2006, uh, the, uh, and, and the idea for the research on which this book is based, Hezbollah had just emerged from the 2006 war with Israel 
and the group and its media built the war as a divine victory, which earned the group the admiration of thousands in the Arab world and beyond and increased its credibility. So for us, that was kind of the, uh, the entry point, so to speak, to the project. Uh, but of course, we, all were, we, ha we had been interested in trying to understand Islamist movements outside of uh, the usual way of uh, understanding them um, in the literature, particularly coming up from the Western world. So in the book, we show that the, the, the idea of the book is, uh, is both trying to understand how uh, the use of communication ran hand in hand with the, with the uh, evolution of Hezbollah from a small resistance, uh, you know, uh, jihadi movement in 1982 to uh, one of the most powerful political parties in Lebanon in 2012. So the book spans uh, 30 years of looking at uh, cultural production, newspaper material, um, uh, television uh, production, and uh, different artifacts, as well as um, advertising, as well as uh, merchandise and DVDs that Hezbollah used as part of uh, its communication strategies. Um, so though many studies had already discussed Hezbollah's political evolution, identity, and ideology, what we found that there, there was a gap in the study of the role of communication and Hezbollah's transformation. Um, and in fact, our starting point was that Hezbollah's evolution, as I explained just now, went hand in hand with its political communication strategy, which, as we show, combines elements of professionalized political and marketing strategies, popular in Western election campaigns, with a culturally sensitive communicative model of mobilization, which in many ways actively selects, appropriates, and disseminates meaningful symbols, images, and language to construct and sustain a constant way of knowing and of being. Um, the book as such is the first to uh, examine in detail how Hezbollah managed, marketed, and constructed its image over a 30-year period, and is the first to include extensive evidence and empirical material to show how Hezbollah used a strategic political communication strategy to market its image and to increase its support. Okay. Um, I think one of the questions for us is how to integrate the methodology with an interdisciplinary approach, which we hoped we achieved. In a sense, we, we did look at all the uh, books that were produced uh, on Hezbollah uh, in English and in Arabic, and we also try to, uh, you know, kind of uh, expand our own uh, research to look into areas outside of our own disciplines, so to speak. So, in a sense, it's it's a, it's an inter interdisciplinary book that uses politics, cultural studies, uh, political communication, uh, plus, um, you know, uh, in in and and uh, literature uh, studies and linguistic studies, which Hatif will talk about now, uh, to try and understand how it managed to sustain um, its, uh, its image um, and identity. And what, what we wanted to try and, and uh, ascertain here is that, the, which is something that I'm particularly interested in, is that um, politics and communication, you know, the, the, there's, there's a dynamic relationship between politics and communication. In fact, one cannot understand politics without understanding its communicative aspects. So if you think about different aspects of the political or of politics, it actually is about discourse, it's about image, it's about persuasion, it's about communication, it's about marketing, and so on. Uh, so we try to adapt that to, uh, the, uh, to understanding how uh, Hezbollah managed to maintain a, a particular way of, of 
of itself and maintain a particular image. Um, and I think I'm going to stop here and leave um, the rest to uh, Atif, who's going to talk about particular aspects that um, he worked on, um, and then Lena will uh, speak about um, other issues as well. Thanks very much. Um, Atif Ashari is a lecturer in Arabic language and uh, culture at the University of Westminster. I think it's a new appointment. Congratulations. And he is also a member of the Palestine Studies Center and the, and the Middle East Institute in London at SOAS. Uh, Atif, over to you. Um, okay. Thank you very much for inviting me, and thank you so much, Philip, for your kind words. Uh, and also, it was a great opportunity for me to work with Dina and with Lina. It was a very collaborative and very interesting work, uh, very int interesting methodologies and background that uh, we hope we have sort of combined in this uh, for the benefit of this book. Um, as I will talk, I will highlight the aspect of particularly the cultural elements that pertain to Hezbollah and how these cultural elements evolve alongside its political uh, aspects that Lean, I believe, will be talking about. So, uh, in a way, Hezbollah, I, there's, a, there's a chapter in the book which is about the poetry of Hezbollah, which is not something that we hear about or it's common to write about. But the fact that the phenomena exist, that it's out there, that it's, uh, Hezbollah's writings is full of it, uh, particularly the earlier period, and also the latter period suggests that we, uh, that uh, this, this kind of material is worthwhile is scholarly, for scholarly attention, and that was the motivation for the poetry that is in, in the book, uh, for, for the chapter in the book, as well as for looking at its cultural sort of background. And in fact, in the first period of Hezbollah, which we're talking about 1982 to uh, the beginning of the 90s, much of the discourse of Hezbollah is quite, it has a lot of cultural elements. It's about creating the kind of the righteous uh, Muslim, uh, uh, Muslim individual who will take up the challenges uh, that the Shia community in Lebanon, but also the Muslims in general, as Hezbollah speaking for the entire Muslim world, being representative or being uh, allied to Iran, speaks of. So the cultural uh, elements of Hezbollah's discourse are very strong and very, uh, and we can see them manifest in particularly in the poetry of Hezbollah. And we see that the poetry basically changed from the 80s, from one that is centered on the creating of the righteous per individual and subject who will take up the challenges of fighting and resisting Israel as an occupying power in the south of Lebanon then as Israel occupied Lebanon from, 19, uh, from 1982 onwards until 2000. And then there is the second stage, which is the stage 1992 uh, and then uh, until 2000 and then 2006. All these are milestones date in the history of Hezbollah, and they are uh, correlate with particular cultural productions, including poetry. Um, so uh, in the first period, we noticed that uh, there is a lot of attention to um, a lot of attention to the identity of Hezbollah. Poetry speaks about the uh, Iran, about as uh, Iran uh, Ayatollah Khomeini being the guiding spiritual uh, leader, uh, who sort of uh, the 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 powerful leader who sort of inspires Hezbollah's politics and Hezbollah's individuals and subjects as 
uh, as political subject. In the second period, we find this as well because there are reiterative elements in Hezbollah's discourse. But there is also more uh, emphasis on the Arab uh, kind of uh, dimension to Hezbollah, which is that it's an Arab party, it's rooted in Lebanon, it's fighting an Arab cause against Israel, uh, and all that is present in its poetry as well as its imagery and so on. And then the third, there is also, in the first period, we also notice that the kind of writings that emerge uh, from Hezbollah are by either by Hezbollah individuals themselves or by sort of Shia sympathizers with Hezbollah from within Lebanon, from within the region. But in the second period, the 90s, the 2000s onwards, we see that Hezbollah becomes sort of a, uh, an Arab party that speaks for the entire Arab world, or it, that's how to project itself anyway. And therefore, many individuals from many, many very famous poets, very well-known uh, cultural figures in the Arab world, start to write about Hezbollah and for Hezbollah. And then its poetry becomes really quite uh, much more interesting, much more varied. The, the types of uh, the types of techniques that are used become much more varied and much more uh, wider than in the previous period. Uh, but all throughout, there are particular themes uh, that are there, which is the victimization element, that the oppression element. Uh, there is the heroic element in Hezbollah's poetry. Uh, it has, it's poetry that, uh, in a way sort of eulogizes the martyrs of Hezbollah. It's, it's a poetry of reclamation. All the leaders of Hezbollah who had fell in the battles uh, against Israel, uh, or, uh, they are mentioned uh, and they are often... And in the second uh, sort of phase, it's also poetry of mobilization. It tends to mobilize people around particular causes. And there are some themes to do with the connection of Hezbollah with Iran, uh, but uh, through the leader of Iran, the leaders of Iran, the culture of Iran. So, in that sense, it's very interesting that it combines Arabic culture, but also Iranian Persian culture in the very poetry of Hez in the poetry and uh, and I guess the imagery of Hezbollah as well. Um, in the second period, we find that it's also the connection with Palestine is very strong. So, there's a lot of poetry that speaks for Palestine about Palestine. And there is also uh, sort of other themes that include particular leaders such as Hassan Nasrallah. There is a chapter by Dina on Hassan Nasrallah in the book, um, and and other and other poets. And there are poets who basically, at one point, uh, sort of joined the camp of praisal for Hezbollah, including Mahmoud Darwish. And not Hezbollah as a party. I think Hezbollah as a phenomena that is resisting an occupation in the south of Lebanon. So sometimes. Darwish, Adonis, all of them have something to say at one point about Hezbollah's <coughs> resistance. And that gives Hezbollah credibility and wide appeal. Uh, so it's, a, it's quite a, a wide range of poetic uh, aspects of Hezbollah that are included in the book. And this cultural aspect is quite very, very strongly visible. It's very part of the make. It, it is, it is very important in the making of the subject of Hezbollah. The individuals who belong to Hezbollah, most of them enter the party. They are initiated through some poetic statements, which is like qasam, acts of initiation, to use Foucault's sort of words, uh, in the party. So it is, uh, it is very important. Uh, these cultural elements for the consolidation of the party and for the mobilization, constant mobilization of its members towards the particular causes and issues that uh, Hezbollah is concerned with. I'll stop here and hand it to Nina.
Thanks again. Uh, let me introduce you to uh, Dr. Lina Katib, who is the director of the Carnegie Middle East Center in Beirut uh, and research associate at the Center for Media Studies at SOAS. Previously, she was the co-founding head of the program on Arab, Forum and Democracy, Arab Reform and Democracy at Stanford University Centers on Democracy Development and the Rule of Law. Okay. Thank you very much. And uh, it's great to see so many people showing up and uh, wanting to hear about Hezbollah. Um, I would have thought, you know, Hezbollah's uh, kind of glory it has been overshadowed these days by a number of other things, you know, taking place in the, in the region. But Hezbollah remains a very uh, important political actor and also an influencer in terms of uh, communication uh, in the region. So what I'd like to talk about uh, is just to give you some findings from our research, because as Dina presented, this uh, book uh, is a historical study of uh, how Hezbollah's communication strategy supported its political strategy over the years. And a key thing that the book emphasizes is that we are talking about a process of evolution. Uh, why we emphasize this? It's because um, there is a lot of dogma in uh, a lot of Western, if I can call it that, discourse about Hezbollah that tends to fix Hezbollah uh, in time and, 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 and space. And not just Hezbollah, but Islamist groups in general. Uh, in a way, they are um, stereotyped as being uh, archaic in the way they uh, communicate or in their ideological use. Uh, they're presented as being antagonistic to the modern world. You must have heard heard these kinds of uh, descriptions again and again, uh, especially in the, in the U.S. where Hezbollah is normally referred to, you know, simply as a terrorist organization, which is a very one-dimensional way of uh, looking at this very complex um, group, and that's why we call it a phenomenon, because it is indeed a phenomenon. Um, so... One thing that comes with this kind of uh, stereotyping of, of Islamist groups more generally, and Hezbollah in particular, is that uh, whenever they innovate, uh, when they use technology, for instance, uh, they are exoticized. It's as if uh, it's an uh, you know, uh, anomaly for uh, a, a group to be Islamist and to be uh, you know, postmodern in its use of um, images, for instance. Um, what we found is that Hezbollah, just like any other group, simply always used the available technology of the time. So in the uh, 80s, when Hezbollah first emerged, obviously uh, it had to rely mainly on the print media as well as cassette tapes. Uh, these were the main modes of communication um, available at the time. And as media forms evolved, so did Hezbollah's use of them. So later, Hezbollah established a TV station, a radio station, various websites. Then 2006 was the peak of innovation for Hezbollah in terms of its communication um, with the 2006 war and the Divine Victory campaign that came afterwards, which showed a very sophisticated uh, use of uh, communication uh, uh, methods, whereby the same message would be reinforced in different media forms. So you would have billboards on the street, DVDs being sold, songs being, uh, uh, you know, kind of composed, T-shirts being sold and other merchandise, uh, games for children, books being produced, uh, the same logos, the same messages, 
messages would reinforce themselves in these different mediums. And it was a very integrated, very media-aware approach uh, that, that Hezbollah uh, used, which, you know, ver was very much the product of, uh, of its time. Uh, the second thing that we say in the book is that throughout its history, Hezbollah adapted its political strategy to stay current. And the media strategy that Hezbollah used, or the communication strategy more widely, was a way to uh, emphasize uh, its desire to stay current in the political milieu. So for instance, when Hezbollah first came to life in the 80s, uh, it presented itself as antagonistic to the idea of the Lebanese state. But this change in the early 90s when Hezbollah decided to enter uh, politics in Lebanon through participating in the first municipal, then parliamentary elections. And after that, of course, uh, it, it became part of the cabinet as well. Um, and this is a process of evolution that has allowed Hezbollah to move from being on the margin of politics in Lebanon, seen as a representative of simply one community in the country, which is the Shia community, into appealing to um, Lebanese at large, and after that, uh, uh, Arabs, um, not just Lebanese, and even Muslims worldwide. Um, so whenever the political uh, context uh, changed, Hezbollah found ways to make itself relevant in the new, in the new context and adapted uh, its own image and its own modes of engagement uh, in order to stay uh, very current. Um, and in doing this, as I said, and, and this is the, the third thing that we found in the book, it started to appeal to more and more audiences. So starting with the core, who are the Shia, at one point, Hezbollah was really appealing to the world um, after 2006. And this message resonated mainly amongst Arabs in the Middle East who saw in Hezbollah a new hero after 2006. Hezbollah came to fill, in a way, a, a gap in sentiment in the region that had been looking forward to having heroes, you know, which had been missing since the days of perhaps uh, Jamal Abdel Nasser uh, of Egypt. And Dina wrote a chapter about uh, the image of Hassan Nasrallah in the book. And a lot of people make comparisons between the persona of Hassan Nasrallah and the persona of Nasser uh, in the sense of um, uh, kind of uh, disseminating a sense of charisma and, and uh, interpolating the audience to participate in a larger-than-life uh, project. Um, the fourth thing that we um, talk about in the book is that throughout all this process of, of evolution, there were certain things that were very fixed for Hezbollah, uh, which um, uh, you know, I call in the book the pillars uh, for Hezbollah, and, and there were certain things that changed, which I think you know, is, is to be expected. Uh, so the pillars for Hezbollah, which have not changed since the beginning, are its commitment to the Shia, so even when Hezbollah appeals to Arabs and Muslims at large and even the world, this does not mean that its commitment to the Shia disappears. It's actually always there, but these additional layers you know, are, are, are extra. Um, the commitment to the Shia remains at the core of uh, what, what Hezbollah is, uh, is, is about. And I think this is becoming very apparent today 
when Hezbollah is participating, obviously, in the Syrian conflict, fighting on the side of the Assad regime, and presenting its participation in the Syrian conflict as being about defending not just Lebanon, but also Shia sites uh, within Syria, and preventing the spread of ISIS, for instance, into Iraq to threaten uh, holy Shia uh, uh, kind of um, areas. So the commitment to the Shia community is, is, is always there. The second pillar for Hezbollah, which has not changed, is its relationship with Iran. Uh, we all know that Hezbollah would not have existed uh, without Iran, but Hezbollah is not an Iranian pet, uh, as, as you know some might, might think. Uh, Hezbollah and Iran have a symbiotic relationship that, again, has, has always been there, regardless of Hezbollah's um, pragmatic take on politics that sometimes meant it participated in uh, you know, elections or, 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 or appeal to Christians, etc. Uh, the relationship with Iran has, has always been a constant. Uh, and it would be unthinkable to imagine Hezbollah one day not uh, you know, being part of uh, Wilayat al-Faqih, for instance. This is very much uh, a, a key pillar uh, for Hezbollah. The third uh, issue that uh, has not changed for Hezbollah is Palestine. Uh, from the very beginning, uh, the raison d'etre for Hezbollah's existence was the uh, invasion uh, of Lebanon uh, by Israel in 1982. And prior to that, of course, the um, Israeli occupation of the south and the marginalization of the communities there, as well as, of course, Palestine itself being, you know, um, uh, occupied. So uh, freeing Palestine is something that Hezbollah uh, has used again and again and still does uh, in its communication uh, strategies uh, to emphasize um, a sense of legitimacy for itself. And again, regardless of political trends, these three things, uh, the Shiites, Iran, and Palestine, remain very constant. But what has changed for Hezbollah is, as I said, um, the additional layers that came uh, with time, such as uh, the addition of a national tag to Hezbollah's activities and strategy uh, from the 90s onwards, especially the peak came with the liberation of the, th of the South in 2000, when Hezbollah began to use, for instance, the Lebanese flag, as well as the Hezbollah flag in its public rallies. Uh, until today, uh, Hassan Nasrallah appears on TV with both flags um, behind him to emphasize that Hezbollah is, is, is about Lebanon, not just you know, the Shia uh, of Lebanon. So in, in, in doing this, Hezbollah's frameworks changed. They changed from uh, using the framework of victimization during the days of occupation in the 80s when Israel still occupied South Lebanon and when Hezbollah presented itself as the voice of the marginalized Shia mainly, but people in the, of the South more generally uh, in Lebanon. This moved from victimization very quickly to resistance. Uh, so um, after this initial period of focusing on victimization, it was a sense of, okay, we want to resist the occupier, we want to resist the enemy, and this became the key uh, framework that uh, identifies Hezbollah to the extent that today Hezbollah has exerted a monopoly uh, on the term resistance in Lebanon. So that basically if you say Muqawama, uh, people immediately understand that you're talking about Hezbollah. It in a way became a different name for the group. So resistance quickly, very quickly became uh, the raison d'etre um, for uh, Hezbollah's uh, rhetoric and, and it took over from victimization. Um, 
Then, when the south of Lebanon was liberated in 2000 and in the period that followed, Hezbollah, again, as I said, it always wanted to stay current. So it shifted to a different uh, framework, which is the framework of defense. Uh, Hezbollah presented itself as the defender of Lebanon against potential aggression. So it's not just defending against actual aggression, but potential aggression. In 2006, we had actual aggression, which reinforced Hezbollah's framework of defense. And, and this gave Hezbollah a lot of legitimacy in Lebanon and across the Arab world, because it was seen as a force defending Lebanon from you know, foreign aggression. So the framework of defense became very, very strong. And uh, when I say the, these different frameworks, uh, so, I mean, when one becomes very um, prominent, it doesn't mean that the others completely disappear. It's just one takes over from the other. So the framework of defense took over, but resistance still very much stayed there until we reached um, two things that happened, which are uh, the assassination of Rafiq Hariri uh, in 2005, the former Lebanese prime minister, and uh, the uh, launch of the special tribunal for Lebanon, which accused some Hezbollah members of um, uh, being uh, you know, involved in the, in the assassination. So with the indictment of uh, Hezbollah members, uh, Hezbollah needed uh, a different framework uh, to, um, in a way, engage with this uh, crisis. And here Hezbollah went back to the framework of victimization. Um, Hezbollah presented uh, the STL as an international, mainly American, conspiracy against it. It presented itself as the victim of injustice. Then after the um, STL period came the Arab Spring. The Arab Spring presented a challenge to Hezbollah because it, in a way, stole the limelight. Uh, Hezbollah had prided itself on being the hero of the Arabs. And all of a sudden, there were so many Arabs on the street protesting, and each one presented themselves as an individual hero. There was a shift in how Arab people started looking at, at themselves. And uh, the focus on Palestine and liberation became secondary to the focus on revolutions against injustice, etc. In the beginning, Hezbollah embraced the revolutions. It declared its support for the revolutions in Egypt, uh, in Tunisia, uh, in Bahrain. And this was, in a way, fine. But then came the Syrian conflict. And when Hezbollah started participating in the Syrian conflict along the, uh, you know, on the side of the Syrian regime, this lost it a lot of support in the Arab world uh, amongst many Arabs who became disappointed with seeing Hezbollah support an autocratic regime when Hezbollah had been known for, you know, being about justice and liberty and, and uh, social justice and freedom and, and, and all that. So in order to justify its participation in the Syrian conflict, Hezbollah again went back to the framework of victimization and presented the Syrian uprising again as an international conspiracy, as a takeover by uh, Islamist extremist Sunni groups that uh, need Hezbollah to defend, as I said, not just the Shia, but Lebanon and even the whole Middle East, uh, you know, against, against these, uh, th these phenomena. So this is where the book ends. The book ends with basically more or less today. 
Um, Hezbollah finding itself at a crossroads, finding that the communication strategies that it has du- had used so well to build a credible image for itself being challenged as a result of the Syrian conflict. But that doesn't mean that it's game over for Hezbollah because, as I said, it's a group that is always about uh, adaptation and, and continuity. And one key thing about it is that um, it has been so successful that we argue that it, it has become a model that has been emulated and continues to be emulated by other Islamist groups uh, in the Middle East and elsewhere in terms of um, communication um, as well as in terms of uh, governance. So I will stop here because I'm sure you have many questions and thank you very much. I just wanted to add something. I think one of the things that we wanted to try and and, and put across is that the understandings of Hezbollah as being some of the writings about it, not only as a terrorist organization, but also, you know, an Islamist movement that is kind of trying to recreate a a, a cultural, uh, you know, an essence, uh, which is Islam. Uh, We kind of say that that's not the case. What we have to try and think about Hezbollah is like it acted throughout this period as a rational political actor. So in a sense, the way that one can understand its actions is through this perspective uh, that that throws a new light on on, uh, on its evolution. Thank you. All right. So uh, thank you very much to all of you. This was uh, this. We have uh, plenty of time for uh, discussion and plenty of material to discuss. I'm sure, as you can see, these are very diverse uh, but uh, uh, interesting views on the subject. We have a, a roving mic, which uh, you need to expect uh, to wait for before you talk. And I see hands up already. Uh, please state who you are. State for who uh, is the question, since we have three persons on the panel. And uh, please make it a question, not a monologue, not a speech. Uh, (laughs) Concise and to the point, please. I see uh, Nicolas Snow just there, so uh, definitely the right person to kick the discussion, I guess. Hi. Uh, Nicholas, uh, just a quick question for all three of you uh, in terms of the methodology. So... Which, uh, which Hezbollah publications did you guys look at? And also, very critically, which Hezbollah political officials but also the strategic communication officials did you guys interview? That's the, that's the sort of methodology question, I guess. But then also for Dr. Khatib, um, you, said, you said Hezbollah presenting the conflict as, pr- as protecting Shia. And I'm just wondering, because I would argue quite the opposite in just Nasrallah's speeches, that actually quite the opposite, he presents it very much not as protecting the Shia. But I'm just wondering what you're referring to exactly. Perhaps you're referring to some other media, social media, supporters. But in terms of direct from the party, and especially Nasrallah, where do you see him actually presenting their intervention in Syria as protecting Shia? Because I think he does quite the opposite. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, Do you prefer to take a few questions or go question by question? Yeah, We're okay. We can answer this one quickly yeah, okay. because it's about. Oh, uh, right, yes, yeah, yeah. Um, I'll it's do the first part of it, which is about uh, which publications. Would, well, we looked at all their publications. You know, starting no. with Al Ahd uh, <laughs> newspaper. We uh, it's an archival research was based on archival research plus analysis of the material. Uh, so we looked at uh, the, the newspaper Al Ahd, and then it became uh, Al Intiqad, and then we looked at their website. Uh, Al-Muqawama, and then we looked at uh, Al-Manar production, some uh, some films, we looked at some merchandise, we looked at billboards, 
We also lo looked at all the publications by all the publishing houses uh, that are affiliated with Hezbollah. Not, or not all of them, Dina. Uh, there are thousands. Yeah. <laughs> most of the a publications. Sample, a sample. A sample. <laughs> no, but we, I mean, in my case, in terms of uh, Nasrallah, I did look at everything uh, that was published on Nasrallah in terms of... Because there's, interestingly enough, there's no uh, biography uh, of him at all. And in terms of interviews, no, we didn't. We tried. Uh, we tried how to interview uh, Hezbollah personnel, but we were turn turned down. Uh, yeah, I just want to say that uh, I spoke to the media department, and they were very helpful. They gave me uh, images. Uh, they allowed me to film in uh, the suburb uh, of uh, the southern suburb. And uh, I spoke to Haji Wafa, if I need to name names. <laughs> and she was very helpful. Um, but uh, to, when, when Dina uh, came, went to Lebanon uh, to, to try to do interviews, this was after the Arab Spring had started. And by then, Hezbollah uh, officials became very careful about talking to researchers in general. So she wasn't able to uh, interview any more people. But my conversations with them happened prior to 2011, when they were much more interested in engaging with uh, researchers uh, more generally. And also, uh, their media department was very helpful uh, in uh, giving me access to archives because, as you know, their archive uh, of Al-Manar was destroyed uh, in, the, in the war, but uh, they still had uh, copies of Al-Ahed Al Al uh, that I managed to get uh, through a safir. Uh, so actually, they had one of their um, researchers working uh, at a safir during the time when I was doing the archival research at a safir. And again, she was helpful in finding me old uh, copies of, of, of uh, Al-Ahad. Now, uh, the, the publications that we sampled, I mean, Al-Ahad, we really looked at all the issues. I, I basically photocopied everything. And... Um, but uh, the, the DVDs, we have a huge sample that we looked at. We looked at Al-Ghalibun, you know, different uh, Al-Manar programs, etc. The books, obviously, we sampled, and, and Atif, uh, in particular, uh, looked at that dimension. And, and the poetry, obviously, there are thousands of, <laughs> of, of, of poems. So you couldn't really look at everything. But, but we tried to get uh, samples from different eras. And the way we chose the samples uh, was around key um, events. So, for instance, the invasion of 82, the release of the open letter in 85, uh, the participation in parliamentary elections in the 90s, uh, obviously the liberation in 2000, before that, Ghana in 96, etc. So we tried to pick uh, certain events that we thought would mark a spike in uh, communication outputs. So, so that's how um, we, we did that. Um, in terms of your question about when Nasrallah mentioned something about the Shiites, uh, there have been several speeches. Uh, your book was very useful, by the way, in, uh, in, in looking at uh, speeches. I wish you would update it, actually, because there have been so many. And uh, one sample speech that you might want to you know, look at as an example, 2nd of August 2013. Um, Nasrallah actually tried his best in the beginning to not use any reference to sectarianism, uh, sectarianism in his speeches, especially when talking about uh, the Arab Spring, especially Bahrain. He was very careful to present the uprising there as not being a Shia you know, uprising. With Syria, he tried to do that, but then towards, I mean, last year was the time when we started hearing 
the Shia identity issue being invoked. But as I said, it's not about shifting the rhetoric from nationalist to Shia. It's about the Shia rhetoric being there along with uh, the reference to you know, defending Lebanon and, as I said, defending the region against takfiri Sunnis, as, as, as they are referred to in Hezbollah rhetoric. So, so this was the shift. Do you want to add anything on this? Or no, I mean, just... We go ahead with the next questions. Uh, there is a question there at the back with the uh, gray sweater. Who's up, up for a while? We can take many now. All right, yeah. Hi, my name is Ahmad. I'm an international relations student. I'd like to pick up from where Dr. Lena left off, and I suppose it's relevant to the question that was asked before me. And it's about, it's about to which extent Lebanon represents not only the Shias of the, of the region, but also the wider communities. And to leave off from specifically the Middle East, also to maybe areas such as Latin America, and the support and the communication and the uh, promotion that they receive in, that they receive in those regions. To what extent is that relevant? to their policy within the Middle East. I mean, you know, we see maybe Morales and, uh, and Chavez and, you know, other regimes, the more socialist-leaning re- regimes in South America. Uh, how, how does that help them promote themselves, not only as a Shia sort of uprising and, uh, you know, resistance to Israel, but also as a wider, you know, as you say, phenomena within the Middle East? Okay, thank you very much. We have uh, two questions here at the front. Uh, just a minute for the mic to get there. I, I, th- I think there was a slight lapsus in your question. You were referring to uh, Hezbollah, not Lebanon, in your mm. question, right? Mm. Yeah. Okay, so I said yes. And uh, here is uh, Professor Zubaida. Right, well, thank you. <clears throat> um, my question is really on the Iranian connection. Um, uh, the, uh, I mean, Iranian politics itself is uh, uh, highly um, uh, sectionalized and factionalized. Uh, and uh, Wilayati Faqih, for instance, is uh, under challenge both explicitly and implicitly within Iran. And the election of Rouhani and the uh, greater influence of the reformists and I'm just wondering whether uh, the Hezbollah communications uh, take, any, take sides on these issues or acknowledge them at all. Um, and to Artif, again on Iran, it's interesting that you mentioned the themes on Iran in the, in the poetry, uh, but is there any linguistic uh, crossover? Do, do these people actually know Persian? And, do they, uh, are they interested in, in uh, the kind of literature from the other point, from the other side? Thank you. And, and Professor Rashid, just now. Um, one, just uh, to follow up from uh, Sami's question to Atif, was the early 1980 uh, distinguished by, for example, uh, Hezbollah poetry in the local southern dialect, or was it all in Fusha? Um, and um, you know the shift from being a southern Lebanese uh, party to moving out of that niche, whether that was reflected also from adopting a different kind of uh, poetry or style and language. 
And uh, just, um, I know the book is on communication, but we also know that uh, Hezbollah has a historiography empire, in a way, research centers that produce history of Lebanon and its its own struggle. Did you um, notice that there is, for example, an echo of that historiography in the media messages? Do they feed into each other, or they are completely addressing different audiences mm-hmm. and different messages? All right. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, regarding the literature uh, of Hezbollah, Hezbollah seems to be inspired by, by the politics and culture of Iran in general. I don't think there is an intimate linguistic knowledge of the Persian uh, tradition, the Persian, uh, the poetry tradition, or the literature, in, uh, literary tradition in general. But you find a lot of references to the Shia uh, figures, Shia historical figure, particularly in the first period. Uh, for, which is quite common with Iran, and also a lot of references to Ruhollah al-Khomeini, the founder of the Iranian, the founder of the Iranian Revolution, uh, and many Iranian figures uh, from within the revolution, the modern period. But there is no kind of—I don't think there is—I uh, didn't see any kind of linguistic uh, crossover or sort of similar themes with the ancient Ghazal, for example, or any of that, which sometimes, because the nation is often feminized in Arabic literature and modern poetry, uh, Arabic poetry, uh, in a particular way in Arabic poetry, which you don't, and sometimes uh, that is mentioned in Hezbollah's poetry, but, and that can be regarded as Iranian, as Persian influence, but actually, no, it also exists in Arabic. So uh, because of the language is Arabic, it is very much an Arabic poetry, but the, uh, in terms of political inspiration, it is inspired by Iran. There is a lot of Shia figures, a lot of them the Shia uh, historical figures, and so on. Um, regarding the, um, the Fusha dialect, this is very interesting. Uh, most of the poetry, the output in the initial phase that I have looked at in Al-Ahid, because this is where it used to be, it used to be mostly directed towards uh, it, the theme, the, the predominant theme was the uh, lamentation over the fallen martyrs, and it used to be mobilizational poetry. So there were a lot of people who were dying, and poetry was about them, and it often tends to be in Fusha, in a classical Arabic. There were some uh, kind of what is called zajal, uh, that uh, another type of poetry, another type of uh, lit- another type of literature, uh, but that tends to be quite limited in comparison with the uh, with the output that is in a classical uh, Arabic. And the zajal continues in the second period as well, but it is uh, again the predominant uh, the, uh, mode as far as linguistic register is concerned. It's in a classical. Uh, and modern standard Arabic in general. Um, I, I really didn't hear your last question very well. I think you're talking about the style, if it has shifted from the first period to the second period. Is that what you... From um, No. I did look at the... Yeah, that I highlighted. The songs, uh, a lot of them are adapted in Am. There are a lot of songs in Amiya, but um, and there are also some in, in Fusha. So in the second period in particular, we find a lot of songs, uh, and they are sometimes even written in the newspaper, in Tiqad, they are written in colloquial Arabic. Um, it's a kind of, they are much more intimate, much more local register. And also references to particular villages that are, uh, have taken part in the resistance, like Bintish Bale, 2006, that you find poetry that is uh, in, uh, written in colloquial 
shabby sort of style poetry. Is there any other? Um, I wanted to answer your question about um, history, uh, his history and references to that. One, one of the things that we want to, to make clear is that when you study the media, you cannot take it out of the historical context. So it's always, it always relates to the sociocultural, sociopolitical context within which it is produced. And this is reflected in the language, it's reflected in the, in the tone, it's reflected in the kind of the frames that are used to, to refer to particular periods. So what is emphasized, you know, the kind of... Uh, the, 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 it, it's very much related to historical context. So this is really a, a very important part of it, is that you cannot really, and this is something that we try and tell everyone when they study media, is that you cannot really look, look at media production outside of historical context. So it really matters. Um, and the second issue uh, is that I think one of the uh, issues is is the, there is a, dynam, a dynamism in, in the production. It isn't, it isn't static. It isn't, you know, it changes, shifts. So in a sense, uh, the, one of the key arguments that we make, which is in the introduction, and then it kind of substantiated in the, uh, in the, in the findings and in the chapters that follow, is the dynamic relation uh, between language and culture. So it was really <coughs> important to have somebody like Atif work with us, who comes from a linguistic background, who was able to kind of help us understand the significance of the language. Um, so the language matters, uh, matters, and it does have a meaning because it has <laughs> historical meanings, it has cultural meanings, uh, uh, it has also emotional uh, significance. So the way that it kind of interpolates the audiences is, is very, uh, very interesting. And it also relates to context. So you cannot really um, kind of present, let us say, a, a, a speech out of context and say people are going to listen to you. Um, so in a sense, this is what we want. I hope that answered uh, your mm -hmm. question. I just want to add to that that Hezbollah itself is very much interested in being a narrator of history, not just its own is history, but the history of the region. And it has many endeavors, especially online, actually, uh, with... Um, you know, timelines of events, uh, archiving speeches, uh, archiving, yes, martyrs, for instance, uh, events, uh, and presenting its, its, its own take on them. And, and it is very much a very aware uh, process of archiving uh, history and, and, and presenting it as a counter-narrative mainly to the narrative of the enemy. Uh, so this is something that Hezbollah does, uh, you know, v very well. Um, I just wanted to answer the questions that haven't been answered, which are Latin American movements and their relevance. Um, if anything, um, Hezbollah itself has been inspired indirectly by resistance movements in Latin America and elsewhere. The PLO was, in fact, also interested and inspired by the same processes, you know, and the third cinema and the camera as a weapon and, and, and all that. So you, you see resistance movements across the globe actually learning from one another, and, and now the relationship is not simple or linear anymore. There, there, there's a lot of cross-referencing taking place. Um, in Iran, for instance, uh, I was doing fieldwork in Iran, uh, and it was very interesting to see how, at the time, the image of Chavez <laughs> standing with Ahmadinejad, because I was there during that area, uh, era, uh, you know, was used to um, 
create a sense of legitimacy for uh, the Iranian regime as being, you know, part of the global south and part of the global resistance, uh, uh, you know, movement. So, so, so there is an indirect uh, influence. But beyond this, a lot of what Hezbollah does in its communication strategies is also very much derived from American politics and political marketing. And so it's not just resistance movements learning from one another while the rest of the world does something else. Everybody is really infusing its own, um, you, you know, their own communication strategies with methods that work. And 2006, which I spent a lot of time uh, discussing in this book, was very interesting like that because it included new things for Hezbollah, like the use of humor, uh, postmodern uh, imagery, uh, irony, um, the use of logos, you know, things that are not normally associated with these resistance <coughs> movements in Latin America, but are very much part of, if you like, mainstream political campaigning. Uh, so, so there is always a process of uh, hybridity taking place uh, in, in the communication message, messages and, and methods of, of all those groups. Um, Sami's question, uh, does Hezbollah comment on internal Iranian politics? Not really. Hezbollah does report. So if you go to any of their news outlets, you will see reports about what is happening, but you will not see reporting of internal um, differences. For example, say the tension between Rouhani and the um, supreme leader. or they, they, they don't really engage in, in, in that kind of uh, reporting. I think, can I add something yeah, here? I think it tends to be, I followed, for example, when the Green Movement in Iran was uh, happening, this uh, event was happening in Iran, they tend to uh, very much focus on the stability of Iran, how independent the country is, and they tend to uh, somehow treat this as a passing phenomena, that nothing will come of it. So any kind of turmoil, any kind of serious revolutionary activities that are taking place as the Green Movement was seen as such by some people. Hezbollah tends to undermine that and it, it's a conspiracy from outside. But other than that, it sticks with the uh, with the Wilayat al-Faqih and with the general political order that is uh, at uh, one time in Iran. And uh, <laughs> yes, uh, we, uh, we take a question here and then perhaps at the back there is a white shirt. Thank you. I have a, I have a, my name is Mohammed Taha. I'm a researcher at SAWAS. Um, I have a question to Dina and a question to Lina. Um, a question to Dina. You, you, you talked about um, uh, uh, a new way of approaching the Islamic movement and a new way of studying the Islamic movement. I'd like you, if you can, elaborate on that and if, if you can uh, advise uh, how, how we could take further this approach of, 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 of the new way of studying the Islamic movement. And for Lina, you, you, you talked about the, the Hezbollah's modernizing uh, itself all the time. So I, I, I don't know um, if you, if, how, how you managed to isolate this idea of, uh, of modernizing the techniques and the political strategies and the counter argument that, that, that says that, uh, that Hezbollah might be, might be uh, um, uh, acting outside, uh, outside the national interest of Lebanon of, or, or the national interest of, of the region. I mean, this modernization doesn't, doesn't, doesn't help in, 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 in a positive way. And um, I'd, like, I'd, I'd like to give an example. Uh, for, example, for example, now the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt 
are are described as 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 terrorist group in in, in Egypt. When you're studying the Muslim Brotherhood, how are you going to approach this this um, this part that 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 some people think uh, 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 that this group is is harming the community, and even if they uh, they are moder modernizing their 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 ways, this uh, is not uh, um, is not going in the right direction. Thank you. Thank you. And then uh, back there at the center, can someone help perhaps and um, pass the microphone through? <coughs> Hi, my name is Ari from uh, Global Politics, the Department of Government. Um, my question, I'm not sure who can tackle it, but um, is how much of the Hezbollah phenomenon uh, would you say is uh, credited to Hassan Nasrallah? And, um, sorry, can you, can you repeat that? that how much of the, of the phenomenon is due to Nasrallah as a leader of, of the organization? Um, and with him out of the picture, would, would you say the organization is vulnerable? Mm -hmm. And uh, a third question is right there with the uh, gray sweater. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Irena Kalhuso. I'm from LSE here. You mentioned, uh, three of you, I don't know whom to address this question exactly, but you mentioned that one of the pillars of, of, uh, for Hezbollah was resistance, uh, then protection, and I wonder if now Hezbollah lost a little bit of, of its credit by, by fighting in Syria, uh, what is, you know, where is his base, or who, who, what is the content of his base today? In, in Lebanon, and uh, just wondering the worst case scenario that Assad fails and something happened in Iran. Do you think that Hezbollah is already such a strong phenomenon that it would survive? Mm -hmm. And the second question when you talk about liberating Israel, uh, is it, oh, sorry, liberating Palestine? We thought that was exactly, <laughs> sorry for the slip. Are we talking about liberating Yafo or are we talking about liberating Ramallah? Sorry, liberating what? Yafo, Tel Aviv. Yafo. Thank Yafo. you very much. Mm. Okay, shall I, shall I begin the answer here and then I'll answer on uh, Hassan Nasrallah and then we'll move on. Um, okay, Muhammad, the idea is not to say that we are introducing a new way of studying. The idea is that we were... You know, we did look at several studies that have looked into uh, Islamist movements and how they approach them. And many of the studies, again, be begin with assumptions, with preconceived ideas that, okay, there is, there is a, a, these uh, movements respond to grievances, they respond to long-held beliefs, they, they, they kind of evolve because of the need to kind of recreate a traditional uh, societies, uh, so to speak. So the way that we wanted to try, the way that we found out once we looked at it is, is that actually it is a, uh, it's a, you know, um, it's a, a social movement, but it's also a political actor. In a sense, the way that it beha behaves, we have to try and uh, use the analysis of politics, the analysis of you know, the opportunities that are available to movements, what happens when you have an opportunity, how do they make use of it, and then what are the uh, conditions um, under which the movement changes or wants to change its image. So in a sense, it's about adaptation, it's about pragmatism, as Lena was saying, it's about 
um, trying to deal with, with, with situations. And in a way, you look at it as uh, holistically. You look at it as a, a, not only an Islamist movement, but you also look at it as a political party. And in a sense, you try and understand how its language and its image changes and why. Um, and so media uh, analyzing uh, communication and uh, the different aspects of the discourse, the language, allows us to see when and how that happens. The question about Hassan Nasrallah is interesting in a way because, of course, Hassan Nasrallah is, as, as we argue in the book, is that he is the central actor in the political communication strategies of Hezbollah. And, and Nasrallah has been uh, very much written about as charismatic, you know, uh, sort of being uh, equated or compared with uh, Jamal Abdel Nasser and other uh, charismatic figures, etc., etc. Uh, but in a sense, through the, uh, through the approach that we, we take and through analysis, um, he is also part of this you know, communication strategy. So in a sense, uh, there is the mediation, the idea of his persona being mediated, uh, the idea that you know, there are aspects of the way that he appears. I mean, he, he is, he is um, very articulate, the way that he uses language, the way that he uh, dresses, the way that he uses jokes. Um, and so on. The you know he's he's um, he's a man of the people. You know he kind of comes across. And we talk to people on the ground, and they all, you know, they like that uh, aspect of him. Um, but if you kind of look at uh, other aspects of uh, the uh, the image, and, and when he appears on television, there is this this idea of preparing. You know, the media, Hezbollah's media, prepares people for the uh, appearance of Nasrallah. So you have adverts saying Nasrallah is going to speak, uh, he's going to say so, you know, he's going to appear in this space. And so uh, in, a, in a way there are preparations, there's a kind of heightened expectations about what he's going to say. On the other hand, there is also a sense of people do believe what, you know, there's at, in particular periods, uh, there was a sense that people feel that he's telling the truth. Um, but one of the central arguments of the book is that Hezbollah is a hierarchical, very much a bureaucratic organization. It's, it's structured, you know, it's got structures, it's got, uh, it's got, uh, you know, uh, sorry? Institutions. Institutions. It's, it's very institutionalized. And these institutions are, you know, they work together and, and media is, is part of these institutions. So in a sense, w what happens is that you know, I, I would say that, um, of course, you know, if, if Nasrallah were ever to kind of, well, uh, whatever happens to him, Hezbollah will have somebody else to, to replace him, okay? Uh, but, of course, he has been put across as being the central actor, and it's not only through his, uh, his personality and so on, it's also through this um, construction, mediation of his persona that is, is uh, something that we argue in the book. Okay, um, the question to me, uh, you, you call it modernizing, Muhammad. I never actually used that term, um, but I know what you're trying to get at. Uh, you're saying there are certain people who look at certain Islamist groups in a fixed sense no matter what they do, right? Um, I mean, I don't know what to do about that. In the U.S. today, books keep getting published about Hezbollah that pretty much say the same things again and again, that, you know, fix Hezbollah as a terrorist group, and, 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 and that's it. 
And no matter what Hezbollah does, these people who come with prior frameworks will not change their frameworks because they will seek to reinforce them, even if it means using inaccurate uh, you know, material sometimes, which you know, I'm not going to name, but a recent book that came out last year did pretty much that. Um, so the innovation on the part of uh, Islamist groups does not necessarily uh, mean that enemies are going to change their stance. <laughs> these two things are very separate. Um, it's not about convincing enemies that we are good people. It's, it's just, as I said, about moving with the times, using the technology of the times, and, and uh, also perhaps using these technologies to intimidate those enemies, as Hezbollah does very well. I mean, one thing that we write about in the book is, is how Hezbollah used very basic uh, intimidation uh, techniques against Israel, such as putting billboards on the border facing Israel, you know, with kind of messages challenging Israel and images, you know, very basic, to establishing a site like Melita in Lebanon, which I write about in the book, which is about invoking a sense of power and strength that directly challenges Israel in very sophisticated and rather postmodern ways. So it's, it's, it's a spectrum. And again, I, you know, the innovation has nothing to do with the perception of the enemy. Um, question about liberating Palestine. Yes, the whole of Palestine. But one thing is, um, Hezbollah never said this, but the Iranian leadership has said this, mainly Ahmadinejad at the time, said, I'm not going to be more Palestinian than the Palestinians. Meaning, at the time, he was referring to whether a deal happened that had the agreement of all Palestinian factions, meaning the PLO and Hamas and others, and if they did agree on an, you know, something with Israel, Iran wasn't going to jeopardize that uh, in order to be more Palestinian than the Palestinians if that deal were to exclude certain areas from the new Palestinian territory you know, that, that came out of that deal. Um, so we can assume that Hezbollah pretty much you know, would be um, towing that line if such an agreement were to happen. But considering that we are very far away from such an agreement, when Hezbollah says Palestine, it means pre-48 Palestine. It's not, you know, excluding any, any particular area, and it's not, you know, um, you know designing Palestine. It's, it's about an ideological commitment to something that was stolen, basically, that needs to be liberated. It's as simple um, as that. Um, what would happen if Assad fails, um, and, and what would happen to Hezbollah and Iran? Well, right now, uh, it doesn't look like... Okay, I'm going to talk about politics purely now. Right now, Iran is not committed to Assad. It's committed to having a regime in Syria that would maintain its interests. And so we shouldn't focus on Assad himself. We shouldn't think that Iran's commitment to uh, the Syrian regime is because they are in love with Assad and will fight you know, f uh, to, to, to the end for him. As long as there is an arrangement in Syria that retains Iranian interests, Iran will be okay with that. And we've seen an indicator of this in what happened in Iraq recently with the change of government from Maliki to Abadi, where we have a national unity government that actually for the first time, has the blessing of both Iran and Saudi Arabia. So this gives you an example of Iranian pragmatism 
which very much also applies to Syria. And, and right now there are debates in Iran about what would happen, you know, if Assad himself goes. And the issue is right now there is no formula in place for who would replace the Assad regime as it, as, as it stands. But Iran is okay with a formula that would retain its own interests. So Hezbollah very much is fighting in Syria because Syria is a thoroughfare for Hezbollah's weapons. I mean, where else is Hezbollah going to get its weapons if not through Syria? It's not going to get them, you know, from, you know, through airplanes. So Syria is a very strategic geographical uh, location for Hezbollah. But if there is a regime or a government in Syria that is sympathetic to Hezbollah and that would allow it to continue, you know, to um, train its uh, people on Syrian land, which also happens, uh, get uh, its weapons through that land, then Hezbollah would be okay with, with that arrangement as well. And I don't see any resolution, to be honest, for the Syrian conflict without it being acceptable to Iran, because Iran has managed to really flex its muscles, and even Saudi Arabia has turned pragmatic as a result. I mean, Saudi Arabia used to think that it could wish Iran away. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Professor Rashid, correct me if I'm wrong. But what I'm seeing, <laughs> what I'm seeing um, today in Saudi Arabia, at least you know, when I was last there, which was two months ago, is some form of change about Iran, not officially, publicly, but behind the scenes, an acknowledgement that maybe Iran is there to stay and we should do something about it. And, um, <laughs> and so there is a sense of pragmatism that I think led to the deal that we saw in, uh, in Iraq with the Abadi government. I'm not saying the Iranians and the Saudis are friends or will become friends anytime soon, but there is a sense of compromise and pragmatism that everyone in politics has to face at some point when their national interests are at threat. And I think today the situation in Syria with the rise of ISIS has brought a common enemy for Iran and Saudi Arabia that is beginning to change uh, calculations slightly, but we are very far from reaching any form of agreement, really. We, you know, we may see small compromises here and there. So what I'm saying is I'm not worried about the future of Hezbollah ultimately. As a key political actor in Lebanon, as the main political actor in Lebanon, I think this has become the new status quo and it will be there for a very long time. And regardless of the criticisms uh, about Hezbollah's involvement in the Syrian conflict, its core supporters in Lebanon still very much support it. They haven't, Hezbollah hasn't lost credibility on the street in Lebanon. Um, it still has the support of the Shia community, it still has the support of its political allies who are non-Shia, and it still basically pretty much pulls the strings uh, in Lebanese politics. So, Any other questions? Uh, there is uh, someone here in the fourth row with the gray sweater, and, uh, and then the lady at the back. Yeah. Hi, my, my name is Jean. I'm a student of comparative politics. Uh, you mentioned that uh, like the Hezbollah's intervention in Syria was kind of turning point regarding its resistant narrative and kind of undermined its myth and aura among the Arab world. But uh, I was wondering what's your take concerning the May 7th event, Sabah-Iyar, in Lebanon? Because I do believe that it constituted a turning point at least at the local level, but also at the Arab level, Hezbollah turning into a purely Shia group targeting Sunnis in Beirut. Mm -hmm. The other question is also about uh, the resistance narrative, and it concerns 
the phase that was before 2000 and uh, the way Hezbollah interacted with the Lebanese left and uh, the way it managed kind to incorporate the Lebanese left within uh, the framework of Mukawama, although it differs on all the points, mainly ideological, and also there is a kind of a bloody history between the leftist uh, resistance and Hezbollah. So this is ads for both Lina and, and Dina. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Uh, at the back there, uh, at, at, it's at the opposite side, so if you can pass the mic to please. How involved are women in terms of contributing to Hezbollah as both a political party and a resistance movement? Thank you. And any other questions? Uh, um, yes, thank you. M my name is Lawrence Joffe. I'm a journalist and researcher. Um, my question was going to be about, is going to be, is about uh, well, two things, if I may. The one is about the Syria, uh, the, the intervention in Syria. I think it's been covered somewhat, but I just wanted to sharpen my question in a sense. There's obviously an anomaly, as there seems to be an, an, an anomaly, of uh, Hezbollah, a self-declared Islamist group supporting a secularist movement like the Ba'ath Party, also being in bed with Russia, in effect. How does it explain that through its communications to its supporters? And the second question also concerns domestic politics. We've, the panel has been brilliant talking about foreign affairs, but surely Hezbollah, as Dr. Khatib said, is a major player, the major player in Lebanese politics, what, what has it achieved over 30 years in the domestic field, especially economically? And if the voters become eventually fed up with no results, might, it, might Shia vote, for instance, go back towards Amal? So those are two quite different questions. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, sh shall we take one more? Sorry, this is... Um, Tom Denham, I'm London correspondent for the Arab Weekly, which is a new weekly uh, newspaper covering Middle East affairs. This is for uh, Dr. Artif. Um, you talked about sort of different stages in um, uh, Hezbollah's communication strategies, sort of starting from sort of fairly parochial kind of Shiism to more um, pan-Arabism. I, I was wondering if, if we're not seeing a sort of new stage, which is kind of a retreat back into a sectarian identity, because... Um, it was kind of it was touched on by Lena, but isn't Hezbollah facing a, a sort of disaster in that its, it's credibility has been shot to pieces uh, in the among Sunni Arabs? And how how is it how is it dealing with that really? How is it trying to sort of respond? Okay. All right. Okay. Thank you. Yes. Do you want Do you want Atif to start? Um, start with yeah. what? Uh, which? Uh, Shall I start with the last? Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, regarding the stages, yes. Uh, the, this, uh, um, okay. Regarding the stages that we talked about, that Hezbollah uh, laid emphasis on its sort of, uh, or it's communicated its its message mainly to its Shia supporter at the beginning, or it entailed much more Shiaism than later period. Uh, I think there is a lot of that now. I think there is, a, but I think because Hezbollah media has expanded. Uh, in the sense that you have a television, you have a satellite television, you have a newspaper, you have also all sort of media that's available to uh, Arabs worldwide, uh, Arab-wide. That is, uh, in that sense, it is discourse is not exactly retreating. I think it's a trying to find as much rationalism as possible, or trying to rationalize its involvement in Syria as much as possible. 
in sort of political science terms. And therefore, it's not exact, at least at the official level, it is not retreating as much as trying to justify its, its uh, intervention in Syria uh, and its political stance now. And in that sense, it's quite different from the earlier period when it was uh, operating at a local level, at a much more local and quite limited period, trying to assert its identity, trying to mobilize people, and trying also to gain members from another a political group, a Shia political group that was operating uh, in Lebanon, which is Amal. So there was kind of, Amal now is, is obviously or hardly is in this is, is hardly in the scene. So I think that the, the the expansion of the media scene and the development of Hezbollah uh, as a political party in Lebanon it has gone beyond the sort of just identity stage to being an indispensable trying to to put itself as an indispensable party that is not only ideological but also responsible within the Middle Eastern region uh, as a political actor. And that's how it acts as far as its discourse now is concerned. And in that sense, I feel it seems different from the earlier period. Um, um, what is um, the woman? Uh, <laughs> I've, I've been tasked to do the woman a question. <laughs> it's a hard one. Um, I, I think that obviously predominantly it's a kind of a masculine discourse, predominant discourse of Hezbollah is a masculine discourse as most of Islamist, uh, uh, most of Islamist uh, discourses are, patriarchal and masculine, that is of quite obvious. But I think uh, it, it's at the same time it tries to include, the, I, I, am, I haven't done ethnographic work in Lebanon to be, able actually, to be able actually to speak conclusively on this issue. But from just simple observations, it does include women in certain arenas. You find them in media, for example, in Manar. There are always women presenting and so on. Uh, but uh, it is not, uh, it's not in a scale that can be called egalitarian by any stretch of imagination. Oh, you want me? Um, I want to answer the one about resistance and uh, the the the, uh, the Lebanese left and so on. I think the trope, you know, the kind of we call it the trope or the kind of the narrative of resistance is is a narrative of resistance that is kind of uh, popular and a populist uh, narrative. And in a sense, one has to think about it in relation to uh, the, the situation in Lebanon. Okay, you cannot just take Hezbollah out of. Uh, the situation and, and, and the fact that, you know, the, the idea of resistance is uh, in is because there is a need for it, or there was a need for resistance. Okay, so you can so in a sense, when you think about the uh, the the uh, left, or you think about other groups, and you think about alliances and so on, there was a period of time, particularly let us say the liberation, you know, when when south of Lebanon was liberated. <coughs> Um, and then during 2006, when you know every, everybody coalesced behind this idea of resistance because it was an existential issue. Okay, so um, of course differences uh, happen, and I think you know one of the things that we have to think about in terms of Hezbollah, and which I talked about before, is that it is also a political party. It's a it's a party that you know. So, you know, can promote itself as being a national party or an, you know, a pan-Arab party. And uh, so the, the, the Islamist, the kind of religious uh, element dissipates when this discourse is more uh, important for uh, the, 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 uh, the audiences or the people that it's trying to reach. 
Okay, so it isn't it, 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 the, the sense of uh, dynamism uh, that goes there. In terms of women, I did I did actually spend some time with uh, with, with some uh, women in in uh, in Dahia and parts of and you know in Hezbollah uh, kind of uh, controlled areas, and they do have a, a you know they do have. Uh, a lot of agency in, in Hezbollah. It isn't very clear in, in the language because the language is a, a masculine language. But you will see that, for example, in the, in the narratives of women. Women are always brought in to tell stories about the martyr sons. Uh, sisters are asked to tell stories about their uh, brothers. And, uh, you know, uh, there was a period of time when uh, there was this... Uh, way of trying to talk about Nasrallah uh, in the newspapers, and they tried to bring about the story of his life. And uh, his mother was, uh, uh, she, ha- she gave testimonies and so on. And, and we do have that, we do have the voice of women. But, you know, generally speaking, it is, um, the, the language can appear to be uh, masculine. Yeah, I just wanted to to complicate that slightly by saying that the women are given voices, but as you can see, in a supportive role, as a secondary role. Uh, They comment on the men. It's the men who do the action. The women do the narration sometimes. And the women are there to look at the heroes and and worship them in a way, you know, from a a distance and help them in the battlefield and uh, provide food and shelter, etc. And even um, out of... Perhaps some of the poems invoke the sense of uh, uh, women waiting the for the heroes to, to, to the fighters to come back, etc. So, so it's the men who engage in the action, and, and the women, you know, um, serve a secondary role. But, uh, but again, as Atif said, like you know, the, my first answer to uh, Nicholas's question about who I spoke to, um, you know, the, the, their one of their key people in the media department is, is a woman, and she's very well known, and, and she has a reputation as being quite a fierce and tough uh, character. So uh, there are not many like her, unfortunately, I would say, in the organization. But, uh, but you know, the Iranian model uh, has women in, in very prominent uh, places, in parliament, in basically all arenas, and, and Hezbollah very much follows in that footstep, uh, uh, you know, follows the footsteps of, of, uh, of the Iranian model. Um, however, uh, although there are many educated women who are members of Hezbollah and women who work, etc., when it comes to the top leadership, uh, there are no women. So it's, it's still very much a male-dominated uh, organization. Um, I wanted to comment on the Lebanese left. Um, there was also a process of uh, appropriation and intimidation that has taken place. So the Lebanese left on its own faced many problems uh, over the years and, and in a way proved to be weak in the face of more right-wing uh, political parties in Lebanon that came to dominate the political scene. Um, but there was also a process of appropriation, particularly in the South, so that Hezbollah really did not like any other entity to be engaged in resistance activities. And this was a period of uh, competition between Hezbollah and Muqawam al-Watani, the Lebanese resistance, which was not Islamist in leaning. And after that, no, today, no one talks about Muqawam al-Watani anymore. Uh, it's, it's kind of disappeared. 
in a way, some people forget that it ever existed um, because Hezbollah has really managed to steal the limelight when it comes to resistance. However, there are so many other social uh, uh, and, and even ideological of a non-religious uh, uh, nature, similarities between the Lebanese left and Hezbollah that um, have brought the leftists and Hezbollah closer today. And, and so, um, in a way, this has taken over from the competition and the differences that we saw in the 80s to the extent that today in Lebanon, uh, a lot of the leftists are at least sympathetic uh, to Hezbollah because of the stance taken against in imperialism and, and against Israel. Uh, whereas the left, because it's of its ideological leaning, looks at all the other parties as being more open to compromise, which goes against what, what the left stands for in this particular context of, you know, countering imperialism. Um, so, so that's why Hezbollah you know, has managed to, in a way, co-opt the left uh, in Lebanon. When it comes to the 7th of May, yes, this was a very damaging uh, uh, incident for Hezbollah because it, it marked the period of loss of credibility among Sunnis in the Arab world more widely. For the first time, Hezbollah was seen in a sectarian framework after 2006 when it was not seen as a Shia group almost at all, I would say. Uh, suddenly the uh, sectarian tag became apparent and suddenly Hezbollah was seen as attacking you know, Arab Sunnis, which, which lost its uh, credibility uh, in the Arab world. Um, Hezbollah, as usual, managed to spin this particular event as being a necessary evil and a state of exception that had to happen to prevent worse things from you know, happening further down the line. And Hezbollah continues to use this uh, uh, framework of exception to justify uh, actions that, in a way, take it outside of the norm. Um, there was a question about uh, how does Hezbollah justify supporting a secular regime in Syria? Um, it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't need to. Um, it's not seen as against the uh, ideology of Hezbollah because Hezbollah already uh, participates in a government in Lebanon that is not Islamist in leaning, and that's totally fine. So, um, uh, the, you know, it's, it's not black and white. Uh, Hezb even Hezbollah's ideology is not black and white. Um, the uh, cooperation with Syria is crucial uh, in in being about a strategic alliance as opposed to being about following in the footsteps of the Syrian regime. So even when Hezbollah uh, is reliant on the Syrian regime to allow it access to weapons, etc., it never presented itself as dependent on this regime or as compromising its ideology for the sake of its regime. No, this is a strategic alliance that's mutually beneficial because we are the guardians of resistance and defense and they are allowing us access. Now, now the situation has shifted, I would say, completely to the extent that Assad has become a client of Iran and by extension of Hezbollah. Because without Hezbollah's involvement in Syria, I think Assad would have found it very difficult to sustain you know, the fight. And so the, the power uh, dynamic has, has, has shifted uh, quite a bit. Um, when it comes to if Hezbollah fails, will people support Amal? Uh, no way. Because, uh, <laughs> because Amal has not... 
achieved so many of the things that gave Hezbollah a sense of credibility and legitimacy within the Lebanese uh, context. Uh, Hezbollah remains a provider for people. It remains uh, a key employer. Uh, it's actually the second, second biggest employer in Lebanon after the civil service. Um, uh, Hezbollah has institutions, Amal does not. Amal still has an association with thuggery to a degree. Uh, <laughs> Hezbollah uh, has an image you know, that, that gives it respect uh, amongst uh, the Shia community uh, in Lebanon. Uh, it it's, uh, has a legacy of, of resistance and defense that Amal simply does not have. And also Hezbollah has crushed Amal politically. Uh, in the 80s, especially the war of the camps. And since then, Amal has always been seen as secondary to Hezbollah. So it would be uh, against the sense of pride that Hezbollah has invoked in the Shia community to all of a sudden go back to Amal, which is, you know, <laughs> a lesser kind of, you know, entity. Um, but as I said, I, I don't see um, Hezbollah's, Hezbollah failing, basically, in Lebanon. Right. Uh, I'm, afraid we, we, I'm, a, I'm afraid we're running out of time, but if you have further questions, you can find your answer in the book, which yes. is for sale here, <laughs> for, for, for half the price, by the way, completely by a coincidence. Um, well, you'll find out later. Um, and <laughs> and uh, let, let me just, let, if you can bear with me, I have to make just two, two very brief announcements. The first one is that tomorrow, if you are interested, MEC will host another important talk at... Uh, uh, 6.30, I think, by Professor Chas Tripp from SOAS on Tunisia uh, and uh, public space. Apologies, at 4.30. Um, and then uh, another aspect that I want to emphasize is that if you are specifically interested in Hezbollah as a subject, there will be another uh, book launch on the 2nd of February by a young and promising researcher. Um, and then uh, third thing, and most importantly, uh, please help me uh, join, uh, join him in thanking uh, our speakers tonight. Thank you very much.